You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. The Prophet Nehemiah by Brother John Unwin. The rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem reveal the character and actions of Nehemiah, a man of prayer. The record shows how God can set up and work in certain situations or place a certain person in a certain situation to achieve his purpose. You never know how God is using you to achieve his purpose. Like Nehemiah, we need to be committed to the work of God. Nehemiah a man of prayer. Nothing is mentioned of his birth, early life or family history, but we are told his father was uh, Hikaliah. Nehemiah, as we read tonight, was the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes, a Persian king who reigned for at least 32 years. Now there's, there's always some confusion about the timelines and the kings here, but um, Artaxerxes uh, can also be a title, and it means great king. So there's some uh, different suggestions about who that could be. But uh, Nehemiah was a trusted man to this king. Uh, he worked in the royal courts, and his duty was to pour uh, the wine and serve the king's wine. So sometimes he would be required to put his own life at risk and drink the wine before serving the king. In chapter 2, verse 2, it's noted that the king notices his sadness. So that to me means that he was close to the king. Um, The king knew him well and that most likely he was perhaps joyous in front of the king and the king noticed his countenance was down, that he was sad. Um, So there's this close relationship there. Uh, Nehemiah is, of course, also a type of Christ. And the more I looked at this, um, the more I just saw that that type type of Christ really standing out. And hopefully you'll see that um, as we travel through this story uh, together. So the the setting in verse 1 is um, in the ninth month, uh, Chislu, the religious year. It's winter and it's November, December. And they're in Shushan, the palace, and this was the seat of the Persian rulers, ruling over a vast kingdom, so a major a major city. Does anyone know, uh, speaking of Nehemiah, what the name Nehemiah means? Constellation of, not constellation, consolation of Yahweh. So despite many of the trials he faced, Um, and he speaks of this in chapter 13, he found um, his comfort in Yahweh. Now, his father's name, Hakaliah, uh, means Yahweh is hidden, and his brother's name, Hanani, means gracious. Well, what's the significance of all this? Well, um, in one book I read, I think it summed this up beautifully, And it's noted that these three names are contained in the first two verses of the book. And when you 
transpose the, or you, you put all those, the meanings of those names together, this perhaps summarises um, the purpose of the book of Nehemiah. So that sentence would be something like, you will see the, con the consolation of Yahweh, even though Yahweh is hidden because he is gracious. So I think that's something really important to keep in mind that although we can't see God, uh, because he is gracious, he provides us with the comfort that we need in, in times of sorrow or um, through trial. So a little more context. The book of um, Nehemiah uh, is also referred to sometimes as Second Ezra. So um, some people say it was originally one book. And so um, I think Brother James did his studies on Ezra. And because he didn't cover Nehemiah, he didn't cover the full topic of Ezra. Sorry, that was a dig. Um, so we're doing that tonight. Now, it, it opens in the Persian city of Susa in the year approximately 444 BC. And later that year, Nehemiah was to travel to Israel, leading the third of three returns by the Jewish people following their 70 years exile in Babylon. Now, the previous chapter, um, that is Ezra, that describes the earlier two returns. But most, uh, most of Nehemiah centres on events in Jerusalem itself. And the narrative concludes in the year 430 BC, roughly, and um, scholars believe the book was written shortly thereafter. Um, it's said of the book of Nehemiah as well that it's the last sort of real historical book of the Old Testament. Although the book of Esther appears after Nehemiah in the canon, uh, it's believed that the events of Esther actually occurred in the time period between Ezra 6 and 7. I know there's some uh, debate about that, but um, that's uh, what I believe at this point in time. So Nehemiah then becomes the last real historical book of the Old Testament. And the reason why this is really important is because what we see through Nehemiah is actually, actually this, um, there's a crescendo at the end of ne Nehemiah in his final words. There's this big celebration when the Sabbath is set up and it it's almost seems intentionally that a period of history had finished. So if you can transpose that over to the next period, obviously when the kingdom, uh, Jesus returns and the kingdom is set up, that's almost a shadow of what we're seeing at the end of the book of Nehemiah. Okay, I think I've missed a few slides. That's the timeline we were talking about there. So the first thing we notice about Nehemiah was his approach to situations. And as our theme is this evening, Nehemiah, a man of prayer. The first thing he does in um, chapter one, when he hears of the gates that are burned and the walls are broken down and the affliction of his people, the first thing he does, it says that he prayed to the God of heaven. And it's actually recorded 11 times over 13 chapters that Nehemiah prays. 
So he, he prioritised his mission by prayer. Before his next move, he would pray to God. Um, if you're taking notes, he prayed when learning the state of Jerusalem, as we said in chapter 1, verse 4 to 11, before speaking his request, request to the king of Persia in chapter 2, verse 4. Um, threatened, insulted, mocked while building the wall, um, he counters with prayer, chapter 4, verse 4. He answers hostility and conspiracy with prayer, chapter 4, verse 8 to 9, when exercising wisdom, um, he asks Yahweh to remember him, chapter 5, verse 19, and there's other references there as well. He answers treachery with prayer, chapter 6, verse 9 and 14. And returning from Persia, he meets infidelity and opposition of the Jews with prayer, chapter 13, verse 29. Uh, someone once said, if you want me to tell you about your spiritual life, Tell me about your prayer life. So if you want me to tell you how your spiritual life is going, first tell me how is your prayer life. Do we only pray for meals? Uh, do we only pray when we're in trouble? Or when we need God? Or are you in constant communication with him? So Nehemiah in chapter 1 his uh, prayer structure is roughly as follows. First of all, there in, in verse 5, there's a confession of the divine character. There's a consistent humble plea to be heard in verse 6, an acknowledgement of national sin in verse 7, a recalling of Yahweh's promises in verses 8 to 9, and that was God's words to Moses. He reminds um, God of Israel's standing in verse 10 and asserts his faith in God's ability. And there's a moving plea for national and personal help uh, in a time of need in verse 11. So the first lesson we draw from the man of Nehemiah was that he was a man of prayer. And this should remind us of that there are many other examples in the Bible, but particularly Christ who was in constant communication with his father. So the question we ask ourselves, are we men and women of prayer? So in chapter 2, um, we flick over to chapter 2 that we read tonight, we actually jump forward about three to six months later. So we can see that um, he fasted and he prayed, but it wasn't something that happened straight away. He was patient, and then when the time was right, and I don't believe he selected this time, I think this time was put upon him. It was in God's time. The king asks him why he's so down, and Nehemiah gets his chance to, to speak to the king. So this was three to six months later. Um, he obviously gets approval from the king, and he goes and um, inspects uh, the walls of Jerusalem. In Nehemiah 2 and 3, he comes back and then he returns to Jerusalem with a fourth group of exiles um, uh, and rebuilds the wall. It's interesting, uh, uh, I thought of note, was in chapter 2, verse 6, it mentions the queen. So it says, the queen was also sitting by him. 
I've asked myself why that's sort of put in there in brackets. Why does he mention this in particular? Some have said that this may have been Esther, but I'm not sure how that would um, fit with your views on the chronology of things. But nevertheless, it caused me to think of how God can work in certain situations and place people in certain spots, and you never know how God is using you to achieve his purpose. So I want you to bear that in mind as well. So Nehemiah travels 650 miles, um, most likely took four months. Um, I, I can't comprehend that length of travel. Um, it, I struggle with four hours in an air-conditioned car. So 650 miles, four months, and in chapter 2, verse 11, he inspects the walls of Jerusalem and it, he notes that it took him three days. Significant? Um, perhaps. Jesus said in John 2 verse 19, I will destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Here we start to see this, this type and the shadow of Christ. In two, uh, chapter 2 verse 10, we meet Sanballat. Uh, the meaning of his name is probably the moon god gives life or may sin give him life or something like that. He was the governor of Samaria. I don't know about you, but uh, when I hear a name like Sanballat, uh, you just know this man means trouble. He's a bad guy. Um, we jump forward to Nehemiah 4, verse 1 to 2, to get this picture of um, Sanballat. When Sanballat, it says, heard the news uh, we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews. And in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can, and just note this bit, can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble, burned as they are? What does this remind you of? Um, well, it reminded me of 1 Peter 2, verse 5 to 9. Um, you can turn with me or read it off the slide. Ye also, as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you, therefore, which believe, he is precious. But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. And a stone of stumbling, a rock of offence, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto they were appointed. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praise of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. What a, a beautiful um, set of verses. And um, when we compare that to, those, to that verse in Nehemiah, we can see that although Nehemiah was building up physical walls, the message of Nehemiah is a spiritual one. It's speaking about God working through individuals building up his, um, 
his ecclesia. And I think it's also more personally, internally, building up our own moral walls. Reminded me also of Matthew 3, verse 9. And do you think you can say to yourselves, oh, sorry, and do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you, out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. And that's talking about us, isn't it? Lively stones, adopted, grafted into the hope of Israel. Um, another verse, uh, another set of verses in Ezekiel, chapter 37, 1 to 14. The hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord, and he set me in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. And he led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were dry. He asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? I said, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. And although that was talking about uh, the nation of Israel, there's also an important lesson to us that he's teaching us. We are a part of those lively stones. Um, God has given us life. He's breathed into us. And while we have breath, while we have opportunity, we should be working in the service of our master. And in doing so, we give glory to our heavenly father. So what did um, the people say in response to Nehemiah's pleas? Well, back in um, chapter 2, verse 18, they responded this way. Let us rise up and build. So they began this good work. And there's a difference there between a good work and a just work. What better work um, is there than to rebuild the house of God, his ecclesia? I'm not sure if you can see that uh, very well, but um, there's the, um, the temple and this is the wall that was broken down that um, Nehemiah looked to, to rebuild. So me, uh, Nehemiah's first task at returning was to protect the inhabitants inside because they were, they were being attacked. So um, Nehemiah began surveying the damage of the walls at night, as we read, and he started at the valley gate uh, down here and he proceeded up this way um, to the dung gate and so forth. Um, Nehemiah started organising the rebuilding and he would allocate different work parties. Here we meet um, Eliashib, the high priest, and he was put in charge of a group repairing the sheep gate. And um, uh, there were many other sections which we, we won't go into, but you can, you can look at that in chapter 3. Um, so this um, Eliashib, the high priest, his name means Ale Restores. Now, 
he was a leader in the work, but the important thing to note about him was although he was active in material things, he did not develop spiritually. And I think this is something that um, I've, I've tried to be aware of in myself, but it, it's something which we all need to, to think about. And that is, even though we might not be one of those people that aren't doing the work, we can be working, but um, not developing spiritually. So we can be doing the stuff and the material stuff, but not allowing, not reflecting on our own character and allowing God's word and his truth to transform our hearts and minds. Eventually, of course, he compromised the truth and betrayed um, Nehemiah. He became associated with Tobiah and his grandson married the daughter of Sanballat. Sadly, he's, he doesn't end up being numbered with the faithful in chapter 13. And he's certainly not mentioned standing with Ezra as he reads from the word of God. One um, Bible commentator counts 42 groups of people from di different uh, occupations and backgrounds who were involved. The rebuilding um, required the participation, coordination and cooperation of the community until completion. If you read the list of names in Nehemiah 3, you'll see that many of them are just ordinary people um, that were just willing to step forward. So um, I did have a list of them. The important thing to note about uh, the people was that all the people were united with one aim, and that was to rebuild the city walls. Um, and as Nehemiah records in um, chapter 4, verse 6, they, say, they said, We rebuilt the wall, for all the people worked with all their heart. So they were completely dedicated to this work. The other interesting thing to note um, about this 42 groups is um, the, the specificity of this, the number 42. It's said that from the giving of the law to the coming of Christ, Abraham to Christ, there have been 42 generations, 14, 14, 14. And if you start at uh, Matthew 1, verse 17, from Abraham to David, you have 14. Uh, then you have the Babylonian, uh, the Babylon ex exile, 14, and then another 14 to Jesus. So this should direct our minds to the foreshadowing and the prophetical nature of the word of God. We should see um, that not only does this foreshadow um, the birth of the Messiah, but the second coming of Christ. There are, of course, some amazing lessons in leadership through Nehemiah, which we don't have time to go into tonight. Um, but, of course, what we see is that Nehemiah didn't do this on his own strength. It was the power of God working through this um, amazing individual as God worked through Christ. So much was involved in uh, building the wall and so much organisation and setup. Um, had to happen once the, the wall was finished as well. And you know, when you're studying a subject like this, you're caused to um, 
ponder your own experiences and the, your own trials and things that you go through. And I can say that um, giving, uh, given my profession, I know a little bit about what goes into building an organisation. But fortunately for me, I'm, um, I work with some amazing people who are more knowledgeable than I. But I w was caused to compare what I've been through to Nehemiah. And I can tell you that nothing that I've been through comes close to what this man uh, went through and the, the monstrous task that was before him and the organisation and the trials he faced. But one thing that came out um, with me is that the Word of God actually um, empathises with each, of, each and every one of us when we look at our own situations and, and compare them to, to the Word of God. So I, I have some appre appreciation. Um, I also know a little bit, as I said, about the challenges that can present themselves. Um, certainly sat with lawyers and um, had threats of court cases and uh, arbitration and things like that. But again, nothing like the threats and the mockery and the threats of death and the deceit and the betrayal that Nehemiah faced on a daily basis, not just these once-off things. Um, Nehemiah didn't sleep. His workers would um, work from sunrise to dawn, and then Nehemiah and his sentry would patrol the walls at night. Um, it's recorded that Nehemiah didn't even change his clothes. That's, that's one thing, thankfully, that I couldn't empathise with. But um, who has time to get a bath and change your clothes when you're about God's work anyway? Um, if I could replay a personal story that got me thinking while I was studying um, the book of Nehemiah. And this was one of the projects that um, stood out to me um, in my line of work, and it was our, our Stage 3 primary wing it was actually four years in the making. And three of those years was a battle with council uh, to get the project approved. And I must say, it, it did my head in. We employed every strategy under the sun. We engaged um, the big hitters, you know, ecologists and town planners and environmental lawyers. And um, we attended many meetings with the council and the board and we tried whatever we could. Um, our last ditch attempt after the council said, you can um, kiss the, the 700 and whatever thousand dollar grant goodbye, you're not building there, we're not approving it. Our last ditch attempt was to write a letter to the mayor. Um, little did we know that our primary students had just won a Minecraft competition. I, I think they were second in the state or in um, second in Australia or something. Um, and they had met the mayor after the awards ceremony. We actually received um, some good feedback from her office on the behaviour of the students. And um, later it was reported to me that the, the students actually stopped and let the mayor go into the lift before she um, went down, that, hence the, the good report as well. Now, when we wrote our letter expressing our concern and our plight to the mayor, she immediately had her secretary write um, on her behalf to the council and said, get this DA approved. Now, what else was interesting 
was that the CEO of the council who had um, been stopping this DA had just taken leave. So three years we'd been at this. He just takes leave and a um, acting CEO was standing in his place. He, of course, wanting to make a good impression, told the project managers who had been stonewalling us to approve the DA. Um, I could almost see the force of the approved stamp in the, the papers when they came across my desk. And this just amazed me. And I thought, even though we, as I said, employed every strategy we thought we could and tried everything over these three years, bringing in the heavy hitters, God in the end worked through some little children and it wasn't in our timing, it was in his timing. Sorry. So it's amazing to see how God can work through these circumstances. And maybe you can think um, of circumstances where he's worked with you too. All right. Um, chapter 4. We see in chapter 4 that he, uh, Nehemiah has this vision and he sets his face on the work that needs to be done. And there's another echo um, to Christ. The work progresses and the gaps are filled in the, in the wall, but um, Sand, Ballot, the Honorite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite, are constantly raiding the city and there's this constant pressure against Nehemiah. They perceived that a restored Jerusalem uh, will be a threat to their power and their influence over the region. And to me, this sounds like the Pharisees in um, Christ's day. Verse 16 of chapter 4, Nehemiah reorganises the work rosters um, so that half the men continue building while the other half guard with spears, bows and shields, holding materials in one hand and a sword in the other. And Nehemiah in verse 14 powerfully exhorts them be not afraid of them, he says. We, are they really stronger than Yahweh? Um, I'm paraphrasing here. Remember the Lord, great and terrible, which means power and judgment. Well, what lessons can we learn from this spiritually? Well, not only do we need to be doing the work of God and trusting in him, but we always need to be aware and on guard for things that might stop or destroy the work. And these attacks can come from many different forms, uh, some of them more subtle than others. Another lesson, and perhaps more relevant to us than ever before, is in chapter 4, verse 19. So here we have, um, as we've previously mentioned, that Nehemiah set up these groups, but he arranged them in such a way as it says, they were stretched around the wall. In other words, they were not in this clump or this clique or not one group doing it. They were stretched all the way around the wall. And I believe that this is saying everyone needs to be doing their part, not just a small select group. And everybody has something to contribute in some small way. There were priests, goldsmiths, uh, Levites, commoners, jewellers, doctors, rulers, merchants, laymen, labourers, men and women, they all pitched in. Uh, chapter 3, verse 12. The work is extensive, Nehemiah says. All the people were spread thin. Not all up to a few people. 
And I'm sure many of you at some point have felt like you've been spread thin. What an exhortation to all of us, particularly at times when our ecclesia is crying out for work to be done. The work that was done in Nehemiah's day was a testimony to those people and their faith as labourers. And they are mentioned in um, the book and obviously uh, the book of life. Doubtless, though, many remained unremoved by the appeal of Nehemiah or fell away uh, through lack um, of interest or through trial. In chapter 5, uh, we have a famine. So it, it doesn't get any better for Nehemiah at this point. There are um, a wealthier Jews in the land. There are people that are forced to sell their daughters into slavery to buy food and sell their land. Others are forced to borrow money at high interest rates uh, from their fellow Jews to pay the king's taxes. And we have a Nehemiah appointed to the governor of Judah by King Artaxerxes. Nehemiah, of course, recognises this injustice of the system and he orders the wealthier Jews to have their um, prof the prophet the profited unfairly to be returned to the lands and houses of the poorer Jews and neighbours. So Nehemiah didn't just face these external issues of attacks and people trying to thwart his plans. He faced issues from within his his own ecclesia, brethren and sisters exploiting one another. Um, then we have uh, another powerful lesson, Nehemiah 5 verse 2. And uh, I'm paraphrasing again. They said, sorry, Nehemiah. So Nehemiah in this appeal, they say, we'd love to help you, but we must take up corn. We need to look after our own families, our own farms, our own properties, in other words. Now, it's true that these people were facing hardship. It's true that there was an injustice in the land that Nehemiah was sorting out, the high taxes and so forth. It's true that they had to look after their families. Don't we all have to look after our families and pay our taxes and so forth? But the lesson is, is this. And I think this is an important one as much for our older people as it is for our young people. And that is that we can create situations now that prohibit our ability to do God's work in the future. So I'll repeat that again. We can create situations now that can prohibit our ability to do God's work in the future. Think of the assets we accumulate, the debt we take on and build up, the ventures and the projects we undertake. All of this, of which I'll freely admit I'm guilty of, can take us away from the meeting or cause us to have little time for the work of the truth um, because we have to work overtime or we have to travel or we have to worry about the things we have created for ourselves instead of being content and thus being in a better position to joyfully give to the work of the truth. I love this verse in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 33. The Apostle Paul says, For I didn't seek my own profit or my own good, but the good of many, that they might be saved. 
All right, so we've reached the halfway of the book of, or roughly the halfway of the book of Nehemiah. Um, we're just going to fly through these last um, few chapters. So Sanballat and, and Co are uh, um, annoyed by Nehemiah's appointment to governor, and they try um, many tactics to um, overthrow him, which we're not going to go into all that detail. But in the end, the walls were completed in less than two months, 52 days, it says, which um, anyone who is, has been involved in building work and when you consider what he faced and the monstrous task he had to accomplish, to do that in two months is you know, unheard of. And it's interesting in chapter 6, verse 16, it says... They fell greatly, and this is talking about Sanballat and co. They fell greatly in their own esteem. Why? Because they perceived that this was the work of God. Finally, it hit them. And this, I, I think, is also another picture of the kingdom and, and the judgment. When people will finally see that what God promised and what uh, his plan was has come to pass, and this has been a work of God and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Um, chapter 7, he appoints reliable men as gatekeepers, and Ezra calls the people together to rededicate themselves. In chapter 8, we have the reading um, from daybreak till noon of the word of God. In uh, chapter 8, verse 14, it says, They lived in temporary shelters or booths by the water during a festival of the seventh month, which is the Feast of Tabernacles, and their joy was very great. Another vision of the kingdom. Um, there's a confession of sins and a national prayer in chapter 9 and in chapter 10, the, promise, the promises and assumed responsibility that we will not neglect our house, uh, the house of God, and that should be our uh, promise as well, that we won't neglect the work of God. In Nehemiah 11 and 12, the people cast lots. Who's going to live in um, Jerusalem? And then they, the new war, uh, walls are dedicated in a lavish uh, ceremony. And the dedication of the Jerusalem city walls is something I'm not going to go into detail tonight, but it's something pretty spectacular because um, the, there was this spectacular ceremony uh, choreographed on a massive scale. There were two choirs which were appointed to sing songs of thanksgiving and they walked about uh, three miles or five kilometres around the wall in opposite directions. So after completing a... I'll just jump back to the wall. After completing a full circuit of the wall, they, the two choirs met up in the temple and the celebrations... Uh, continued with, with praise to God. And the wonderful vision here is of the kingdom because here you have Ezra leading one choir and Nehemiah leading the other. So you have king and priest, a complete picture of our Lord Jesus Christ coming around the wall and finally meeting in the temple. And in Nehemiah 13, finally, Nehemiah completes his reforms. He insists that the people... Do not work on the Sabbath day. And 
as it were, he's establishing this day of rest, the time of the kingdom, and he finally closes the gates of the city. Um, so there is in chapter 13 here, and particularly in verse 3, this exclusion of the outsiders. And I, I think there's an important lesson here for us, that in this age we currently live in of humanism, of inclusiveness and an acceptance of all and a tolerance of all beliefs and life choices provide we don't hurt anyone it can be easy for us to just have our moral walls broken down and just allow all these uh, philosophies and these um, false morals and doctrines to to cloud the principle that we are to be a holy and separate people from that way of thinking of the world so what are we doing to um, protect um, our own selves and our ecclesia without covering the light of the gospel message? We can't have our young people being naive to these things, but then how do we protect them from the world? And I think the priority is to build up the walls, uh, which is establishing a strong foundation on the word of God built on that cornerstone, um, our Lord Jesus Christ, and, and teaching our kids those principles and, and ourselves. So lastly, I, um, the reason why I gave you the handout is because we can't go through all the types of Nehemiah, uh, uh, Nehemiah as a type of Christ. <clears throat> but if you've seen the handout, um, these are just, they're not mine, they're things that I've gleaned from other sources, maybe some of them are mine, but um, and other people that have helped me. But here are just some of the things where I think there's just this wonderful theme through the Bible and it just jumps out at you of the way Nehemiah is just this wonderful um, type of Christ. And so I'd be really interested um, after the class if you have any more that you can think of or um, those online if you want to um, speak to me at some other time and I can add to this list because I, I just find this stuff so amazing and it really um, strengthens my faith in the, in the Word of God. So I will um, mention the last one, although I don't think this is the strongest one, but finally you can see Ezra stands before the people and there are 13 priests and Levites. And here is a, potentially a vision of Christ and 13 apostles and where I get that is 12 apostles minus one and plus two. Now not everyone is going to agree with that but um, that was just my uh, final point there but there's some much stronger um, types there. Now um, a summary of the lessons which we've spoken about tonight in conclusion. The book of Nehemiah shows us the kind of significant impact just one person, one individual, can have on a nation or an ecclesia. Nehemiah um, used his position, even though it was a, a secular office, to bring back um, order to the Jews, uh, stability and a proper focus on God. We need it as brethren and sisters to work together for good we are to be lively stones this is not just a lesson about building physical walls this is about building our ecclesia 
and it's about building moral walls within ourselves. And this is about how God works through individuals. We are to approach every situation in prayer as Nehemiah did. Before we jump, let's say a quick prayer. And there's a lesson there that there is no greater work than rebuilding the house of God and each doing their part despite many projects we could invest our time in. Finally, God uses all manner of people in all manner of places doing all manner of work. Let's be encouraged that God is not limited by our vocation. In fact, God has placed you right where you are, right now, for a purpose. Have this attitude about your work. That whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. And finally, in verse 30, Nehemiah ends with this prayer and this petition. Remember me, God, for good. And this should be our prayer also, not because we are good, but for all the good that we have done by God's grace and through his strength uh, in the work of our Lord. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at bt f at cdvideo.org If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen.